Hey, 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 how's everybody doing today? That's, like four of you are doing good. That's great. That's great. We got to work on that, guys. We got to work on that. How are you guys doing today? There we go, man. It's good to be in church. I got to tell you, I mean, I love coming. I love being here. I hope you love being here. I know I'm kind of the guy in charge, so you know, that maybe I'm a little biased, but I think we have an amazing church, right? I think we have an amazing church. Listen, we're not the biggest church in town, but we are the best looking church in town. That's right. You know it. Tell your neighbor you're good looking. That's right. You go, hey, you're good looking. Good looking. That's right. We got some good looking people in here. Tell you that much. You guys, if, if you're new here, my name is Matt, and um, my wife Amber and I were the pastors here. And, and if we haven't met yet, I'd love to get to know you. Um, I'll be hanging out in the lobby afterwards. But, but you know, you could also introduce yourself to us the same way. If you want to text in guest to this number that's up on the screen, you can just do a quick little hey, my name is thing, and then uh, we shout back and say, we're so glad to have you. And so kind of a quick introduction. If you want to get connected around here, we'd love to have you get connected uh, in that way. And, uh, and then the same way, there's also also giving options there if you came prepared to, to give financially. Like there's an electronic giving option there. There's also, um, if you want to do analog, which is like checks and cash, there's drop boxes where you can do that as well throughout the building, throughout the building. You know, if you see this table up here, and, and, you're, and if you weren't here last week, you're like, why is there a table um, on the stage? And so uh, we're going to kind of talk about that a little bit. I, I kind of like, I like the table. It's nice. Actually, a, a friend of mine handmade this table um, he went up north, found walnut wood. Like, I don't think he cut the tree down, but he found somebody to cut a tree down, and, and he handmade this table. Um, he's just a, a brilliant artist when it comes to woodworking. And so it's a, beautiful, it's a beautiful table. It's interesting. So much of our lives are spent around tables. And in fact, I have, well, you know me, so I have terrible jokes all the time. I just can't help myself. And so, um, you know, what did the table say to the chair? Don't worry, dinner's on me tonight. <laughs> terrible so after dinner my wife said hey can you can you clear the table and I said I think so if I can get a running start <laughs> and so you know and sir and uh, King Arthur had his knights of the round table you know the largest of those knights was circumference yeah I know I know he acquired his size through uh eating too much pie a deeper level. Yeah, you like that. <laughs> All the engineers and scientists thought, <laughs> everybody else is like, pie. oh, pi, 3.14, a number that relates to an, okay, all right, I don't, the further I explain it, the less funny it gets, isn't it? Yeah, it's all right. So a blind man walked into a bar, and then a table, and then a chair. All right, I'm done. I'm done. I just had to get my, my, my table jokes out of the way for you guys. I know you'll, you'll thank me later, and so just so you know, yeah, that, I, I, I worked really hard on those this week. I worked really hard on those this week. You know what's funny is, like, we spend so much time around tables. In fact, you know, when you think of a table and, like, a dining table, oftentimes memories or thoughts or ideals of family tend to creep into people's mind. They think, well, family dinner. And, and maybe in your house, you eat every meal together at the table. Um, my house, we don't eat every meal together at the, dinner t- at the, at the, at the dining table. Um, most evenings, we find a way to get our family together at dinner time around the dinner table. We have another table, though, in our house. It's in the kitchen. How many of you guys have two tables, one in the dining room and one in the kitchen? Or Yeah, yeah, so I see the hands. That's a pretty common setup or little breakfast nook kind of thing. But when you think about both of those tables combined, we end up eating most of our meals at one of those tables. 
whether it's breakfast or lunch or a snack or dinner or whatever it might be. And sometimes we're all together or sometimes it's one here and, and one there. Some of my biggest moments in life happened around a table, though. Like some of the biggest ones. Like some of the hardest conversations I've had to have. Like when I was a kid growing up, my parents had to have a few hard conversations with me, especially when I was a teenager. Those conver- Amen, that's right. So those conversations, though, they happened around the table. I don't know what it was about the table that made those conversations easier, or facilitated them for whatever reason. But those conversations happened at the table. You know, I, I did a little research, and, and I figured out that the average American will spend 32,000 hours of their life at the either kitchen or dining room table. 32,000 hours. That's a, that's a long time. It's actually more than three and a half years of your life will be spent sitting at a table. Sitting at, at, at a table. But these table meetings, right? There's good news. There's celebration. How about when the family gets back together? I was just in Portland this week for a little church meeting thing, and my folks live up there, so I got a chance to have dinner with my parents. They used to live here. Well, they had moved there. When they moved, they actually took their table with them uh, when they moved. And so I sat down at what was the table in their house here, and we sat together, and we had a great time of, of reuniting, reconnecting, telling stories, the remember whens, you know? Remember when this happened? Remember when that happened? The exciting times that we talked about. I got to tell you that the tables in our life share so many, so many moments of laughter and joy, of pain, of tears, of, of anguish, of, of what am I doing or where am I going and the uncertainty, the anxiety. The, the table has so much that ends up being part of our life everywhere that we go. It, it's just something that's, that's, that's part of, of everyone here. You can think of that table that you sat at and had to make that tough decision. This week, some of you are going to sit at a table and make some really hard decisions because fantasy football draft is happening. <laughs> now, if you're in a PPR league, I got some advice for you. Running back, running back, wide receiver, quarterback, wide receiver, tight end, tight end. And <laughs> Somebody texted me this week and said, do you have any fantasy football advice? And I was like, maybe on Sunday. We talked about this last week, but this is, this is where I'm going with this, is that the table, it represents the church. This is a giant illustration that I'm going to be using last week, this week, and even next week with these chairs and the table. And, and the table is, represents the church. You see, when you look around in the Bible, you see all the time Jesus and his disciples were lounging at a table. They were hanging out at a table. They were eating at a table. The Last Supper communion was served at a table. And all through the Bible, you see the, the use of, of the table and used in different ways. But I'm telling you, in, in the Bible, here's the illustration, is that the table is the church, and there are different people and different chairs that are set up around the table. And we serve a supernatural meal at this table that we call church. We prepare the bread. We prepare the meal. We prepare. I spend time, and I study the word, and, and, and I'm the dude with the food, they say. And, and, and so I've got the meal that we have. And In fact, Jesus said he was the bread of life, and so we start to look and to see what is it that Jesus said, and we start to study his words and, and, and all the words of the Bible. Last week, we talked about the feast at the table. It was a story that Jesus told. He talked about how the master prepared a meal. He had a, his invite list, and he says, here's the date of the party. This is when it's going to happen. He made the meal. He made the feast. He went to invite, and everybody said, I'm too busy. I don't have this going on. I got that going on. I can't, I can't make it today. And so the master said, sent his servants. He said, just go invite whoever that you can to this table. 
And they did. They invited all kinds of people. They all came and they sat at the table. And the master said, I still have yet more room. Go back out and continue to invite whoever you can find to this table. Jesus is the master. We are the servants. The table is his church. And, and, and there is plenty of room at the table for those people. Who are the whoever's in your life that we need to be bringing to the table so that they might get into a relationship with Jesus? This series is about who we are as a church, where we're going over the next 18 months because I'm jumping ahead to the 2020 year. I'm doing it early, 2020 vision. I know you're like, it's only 2019, Pastor Matt. Well, yeah, but we got a lot to get done, so we're starting a little bit early. I'm a morning person, apparently. Guys, there's many forms of evangelism that you can use to reach people for Jesus. You can stand on the street corner with a bullhorn if you'd like. I'm not sure how that methodology works. I've never tried it. I'm not sure if there's a great return on investment. I've never done it. There's guys with sandwich boards that are, that are walking around and preaching. There's those that, that try different methodologies to try to reach people for Jesus. But today, I want to cover this one, the, what I would consider the easiest way to reach people for Jesus. Can you invite them to church so they get around God's people? They can pick up the atmosphere of what God's presence is like. They can be around Jesus' people so they can understand what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Inviting people to church is one of the easiest ways to start down that journey of, of reaching somebody for Jesus. The invitation to church. You see, the church is the table where people come to get fed. In John chapter 6, there's this famous miracle. Many of you know it, and if you don't know it, you've heard of it. And it's the loaves and the fishes, where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And they had the crowds that gathered up, and Jesus is teaching on the hillside. And they said there was 5,000 men, which means there were probably 5,000 women, which means there could have been at least another 5,000 children, maybe more. Scholars have debated what, what the actual big number would have been, but the 5,000 men was what was documented. And, and so out of 5,000, 10,000, maybe 15,000 people, they're like, we have this huge crowd and, and we need to feed them, the disciples said. And Jesus says, well, how are we going to do that? And, and they came up with some crazy stuff. And then one guy says, well, this kid has a lunch with five loaves and two fish. That's all we got. And Jesus is like, well, I can take that little bit and work a big miracle. No problem. So he does it. He feeds the 5,000. It says that if you keep going through the, through the book, through the chapter of John 6, it, it shows that Jesus actually went to a different place and the crowds followed him. And they, they basically come saying, looking for food again. And Jesus has this discussion with them and says, hey, listen, I know that you're looking for food and that food is temporary. And, and, and if I give you that food again, you're going to be hungry again. And so in verse 35, it actually goes up to this place. And, and it says, uh, Jesus said to this crowd, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Jesus says, I am the bread of life, the gluten-free, non-GMO, whole grain bread of life. He is the whole deal. Like if you eat of him, then you are never go hungry, which means this is that you found the source of the food. You found the, 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 the thing that you can continually eat on and it will continually keep you full. You don't have to chase to this thing or that thing or the other thing to try to find something to satisfy your hunger for the short term because you found the long-term solution. So many people in our culture, they're hungry. They're hungry. People around us are hungry. You might be here today and you're hungry. You might be spiritually hungry where you're at today. Listen, all I am is one beggar telling another beggar where the food is. We found him and his name is Jesus and he is the bread of life. 
So many people in our culture are hungry and they're, and they're getting snacks. They're getting motivational pep talks. They're strolling Instagram for the little memes that have 15 words in it. And they're going like, oh, I feel inspired to go change the world. Hashtag girl power. But they're still hungry. They still run out of energy, right? It's a snack. It feeds you for a moment and you start to feel motivated, but then it just starts to fade away because it's just something that is temporary. It's a poof. It's a vapor. It's a mist. It's just there and it's gone. The only thing that will fill you up and keep you full is a relationship with Jesus. That is the only thing that can do it. You can try everything else in the world. People try all kinds of things. They try, they try fame. They try, they try sex. They, they try money. They try material objects. They try different kinds of, of relationships. But what you really need is to be filled with Jesus. It's interesting. When you look at the methods that Jesus used to reach people who were far from him, he never used criticism as one of them. Think about it. Somebody who was far from him, he never used criticism for... In fact, he reserved his criticism for those who were the religious type, who were pretending like they were following him when, or pretending like they loved God, but they were using God as a, as a tool to manipulate people. His harshest criticisms were reserved for the religious people at the time. But those who were far from him, he showed love and compassion and grace to every one of them. As we are believers here reaching for those who are unbelievers... Let your words be filled with love and compassion, not criticism and judgment. Because that's not the right way to reach people. If you look in John chapter 4, in John chapter 4, there's, there's another story where, where Jesus is traveling. He's with his disciples. They're tired. They stop by a well. They go to have a seat, and it's the woman at the well, if you're familiar with the story. The disciples, there, they're all hungry. They're like, we're going to go to Chipotle and get, get a burrito. What do you want? And so they go over there. They get it to go. As they're gone, going to get the burritos, Jesus is sitting at the well, and a woman comes up and sits at the well and starts to get water out of the well. It was funny because it was the middle of the day. Normally, they do this in the morning when it's cool, but she was out by herself when it was hot. And so then she, Jesus starts to talk to the woman. Well, in that culture, that was kind of a big no-no. So he was talking to a woman, and on top of that, he was a Jew and she was a Samaritan. So there was already a lot of racial tension there, plus a gender tension that was there. There were two things in a row of like Jesus had to jump some hurdles, cross some boundaries, if you will, things that normally our culture would have said, you can't do these things, or gee, you shouldn't do those things. You might need to cross some boundaries and some hurdles to reach people for Jesus. You might need to do that to show the love of Christ to somebody. You might need to talk to someone who is ah, a Republican. Ah. You know, you might have to... I think three of you thought it was funny. <laughs> and we have a mix. I love that we have a mix of every kind of person in this room. We have, we have Democrats and Republicans, and we have, you know, uh, uh, socialists and libertarians. And, and I'm glad we don't unite under that, right? We unite under who Jesus is. That's, that's who we unite under. Listen, don't, don't let the, the, what, the culture, what the culture says are barriers for you to have relationship with people. Don't let those barriers stand between you and them. That, that, is, that shouldn't be where we start drawing lines on it, right? And so, so as we're out in the world, you got to be able to look past that. Jesus worked past that. He, he worked past that. And, and, and he was like, hey, I'm going to reach past this point. So he, he starts talking to the Samaritan woman, and, and, and he says, hey, can you get me a drink out of this well? And they have a conversation. And then he says, listen, I can give you living water that never runs dry. 
I can give you living water that, that never runs out. And so in verse 13, 14, it says this. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, referring to the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will, <clears throat> will become in him a spring of water welling up eternal life. So she's excited. Endless supply of water sounds fantastic. Don't have to go to the well anymore. And so they, the conversation continues. Jesus says, well, why don't you go grab your husband? And she's like, mm, I don't really have a husband. And then he says, actually, you've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with now isn't even one of them. Ooh, scandalous. <laughs> right about then, the disciples come back with his burrito for lunch. And Jesus is like, I'm not really that hungry. We're dealing with this situation. Well, she had left and she goes and then she ends up coming back with a bunch of the villagers are coming back to meet Jesus over at the well because she's telling everybody about this guy that must be a prophet, must be something to be able to know so much about her on such a deep level. And he says this, if you, if you keep going forward in verse 35, it says, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are ripe for harvest. See, the fields are ripe for harvest. In fact, in Matthew 9, 37, it says this, that the harvest is ripe, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord to send out laborers into his harvest. You see, when Jesus starts this risky conversation, it turns into a multiple, multitude of people coming to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. My challenge to you is, can you start some risky conversations in the name of Jesus and see what God might do through that? Can you take a step of faith to have a risky conversation with that person in the cubicle next to you? Can you have that conversation where you start to talk about your faith with others? Can you talk about Jesus with other people? Well, gee, I'm not really sure because they've been raised in this kind of background. I'm not really, yeah, well, Jesus crossed a couple boundaries to get to the woman at the well. How many boundaries do we need to cross socially to be able to express who Jesus is to others and share them? You see, Jesus is the bread of life, and he's a living water. How are we going to get people to the table to be able to eat the bread of life and drink the living water? So here's what I find is that there are different chairs at the table, different chairs at the table. And there's, there's a chair over here, chair number one. This is for the new believer, someone maybe not a believer, those who don't even believe in Jesus yet. They're here. If that's you here today, I'm glad that you're here. I want you to know that. I'm genuinely happy that you're here. And I believe that if you hang around this place, God will genuinely change your life. He absolutely will change your life because we serve a God that is good. And he will, he will, he will show himself real to you if you hang around and start looking for him. He will show himself real to you. There's three chairs and I think our church should be filled with, with a third of each of these types of people. Our church should have a third of the seats filled up with people who don't know Jesus yet. Now, I can tell you, okay, I was going to say, let's raise hands and see who's a believer or not. I'm not going to do that. But I can tell you that it's not a third. But we've got to find a way to reach those people who are far from God so that they might be here. I think in Acts chapter 2 church, a on-fire New Testament church would be a church that would have the multitude streaming into it to hear who Jesus is. We've got to work on that. It's funny, last week we talked about how the Great Commission was go, make disciples, and baptize. In our culture, we've done really good at turning the go into send money to missionaries in other countries. But we haven't done a good job of taking that go and saying, who's in my backyard? 
Who's in my cubicle? Who's at the gym next to me? Who's in my life around me? Guys, we've got to take the go command that comes out and say, God, how would you have me go to those who are near me today? Well, what if they don't have all the answers to the questions that they might ask? Bring them to church. Anyways, you know, I don't know. You should come to church anyway. Well, I'm not sure about this or that. Listen, the fear of not of that, that right there is what stops so many people from talking about Jesus to others. Well, what if they ask a question that I don't have the answer to? You tell them, I don't know that. I'm not sure. Can I do a little bit of research and get back with you? Most of the time, they're going to be like, okay. That's, if you tell them that's a great question, they're going to feel like their question was great. That's a great question. Let me get back with you. And then you go and research it, and you come back and give them an answer. You don't have to have all of the answers. I get stumped sometimes, too. Like, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? (laughs) But I got to tell you, if you're in the chair one today, I don't expect you to behave like a Christian. I don't expect you to behave like one. I don't expect you to, to, to be, if you don't profess Jesus as Lord, if you don't profess that, then, then why would I hold you to a standard of something that you're not proclaiming over your life? Church, we got to have room for people who aren't Christians in our midst, to be able to hang out, to be able to understand, to be able to search and to seek and to find. We, we've got to have room for that. And we got to give them the grace that God once gave to you before you were a Christian so that you might find him, so that they might find him. Because we have got to be people of grace and love and compassion. We can't be people who are people of criticism over those people that aren't here yet. Those people who are far from God, maybe. You can, we can't have that critical spirit on top of us. We've got to have uh, the grace for, for those people who are far from God. It should make up a third of our church. It's funny how everybody says they want to reach people. Every Christian says we should reach people until you start reaching people. And say, oh, yeah, we, we got to reach people until you start reaching people. Why do they say that? You know why? It's, it's because reaching people requires change. And, and, and in theory and in concept, we sit and, and we think about it. Well, I think change is okay. They, they could change that over there, and they could change this over here, and they could change that over there. I mean, that's fine. We could totally change. The problem is that when the change says, oh, no, no, you have to change this over here. Oh, wait, hold on. <laughs> hold on. Nothing's wrong with this section of the church. Listen, I'm telling you, the church is growing, and when we go to double services, everybody's going to have to change. Every department changes a little bit. We have to make adjustments in order to reach those people so that, so that we can, we have to make room. God's bringing people into our church, and we have got to be responsible about that. We have to be able to handle with what God's bringing us. And so we've got to make changes in order to reach the people God's doing, bring it to us. Listen, we're going to become a one-chair church, a chair-one church. We're going to become a church that this becomes the focus of what we do. That's it. That's what we're going to do. We're going to become a church that is reaching the lost. Five of you are like, okay, I might be able to get on board with that. It's fantastic. Well, that's it. We're going to become a chair one church. We're going to reach people who are far from God. That's what we're going to do. There's a second chair here, and, and this is this one, is that you become a new believer. So someone tra- makes a transition. They make the step. They, they move from chair one where they don't know God, and they move into chair number two where they make a profession and say, you know what? I choose to put my life in Jesus' hands, and I choose to become a follower of him. Chair number two is, is an exciting time. 
Because they've made a decision. They've crossed this line from death into life. They, they were once condemned to hell if they were to die, and now you know they're going to heaven, and there's this exciting thing that happens. The person that was lost is now found. The person that was empty is now filled. The one that was hopeless has found hope. There's something that happens between chair one and chair two that is so exciting, so exciting. But, but then there's a little bit of, of, of responsibility for us in chair two and three that are already here. Is that, is that we have to teach them how to pray because then maybe they don't really quite know how to pray. We've got to teach them how to read the Bible and how to, how to fill up their spirit because there's a responsibility that if you're a believer and somebody else, if your friend or whoever else becomes a believer, you're, you're there. There's a little bit of a discipleship responsibility. You've got to teach them how to read their Bible. If you're a brand new believer, I don't expect you to act like a mature believer. Yeah. Right? When you have a baby, you don't expect your baby to be able to act like an adult. When your baby is got a poopy diaper, you don't go, oh, come on, you couldn't make it to the toilet? You know, like, no, you, you, you take care of business, right? You, you help clean it up. Listen, new believers will make messes. That they will be excited about following Jesus. And maybe you found yourself there where you make a decision to follow Jesus. You start to follow him and you screw up. You trip, you fall, something happens. You slide back into something that was your old ways and that you thought you were going to get set free from. Listen, if, if you slip back, just get right back. It's not a big deal. Jesus is more concerned about your future than your past. And so it's okay to be like, all right, I, I slipped up. If you wallow in that, listen, that isn't what God wants you to do. He wants you to say, no, 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 I choose to believe in the future that God has for me and I'm going to continue to follow him. When you slip and fall down, the difference is this is when you get back up, which direction are you going to face? Are you going to walk away from him or are you going to continue to walk towards him? Sometimes a journey with Christ can look like three steps forward and one step back. Don't let that one step back take you all the way back. And so you have a new believer in there. They're starting to go, listen, join a small group if you're a new believer. In fact, everybody here should join a small group. Small groups are launching right now. They're, they're, their signups are active. They're, they're going uh, and they're launching here in the next few weeks. You can sign up for a small group on our website. You can also, there's a list of them out there in the uh, Connect Here room right out there. But get signed up for a small group. That's a great way for you to grow in your faith, regardless of your place in your, in your walk with the Lord. It's a great place to start taking steps of growth um, in your place. Listen, if you're, if you're a new believer, I don't expect you to act like a mature Christian. But let's talk about the mature Christian for a minute. Let's talk about the mature Christian. It's funny, you, you move from new believer into mature Christian. And you're over in this, this chair on this side of the table. You move. You move from, from being a baby to, to moving over into childhood, into adolescence, into young adulthood. And you get all the way over into a mature believer. Here's what's interesting is I have seen God take people from that far chair around to this chair in seemingly no time at all. Listen, the growth curve that you are on from chair one to chair three doesn't necessarily mean 20 years. God can do that in a very short amount of time. In a very short amount of time, I've seen it happen. And I've seen it happen too, where someone will go from chair one to chair two, They'll move over here to chair three, and then they'll start to slip back to chair two. And then they're, and then they're doing this number, and they've got two chairs going, and, and then they're trying to, to straddle them both. And, and, you know, one day, I like to be the mature Christian because that's fun. And the other way, I'm, like, I'm kind of like the more the kid Christian because that's fun. Sundays, I like to be over here. Tuesdays, I like to be over here. Sundays, I like to be here. But Friday nights, baby, woohoo! 
You right? Like, come on, right? So, so do, are we, you, know, you shouldn't be chair hopping. You got, you got to find your way over to where God's having, leading you and get over there, right? You got to get over there. The mature chair is the mature Christian has some things about it. You know the fastest way to spiritual maturity? The fastest way to move through the chairs over here is to start focusing on that chair over there. Start focusing on chair number one over there. Because when you start to focus on chair number one over there, a maturity comes into you because now you have a focus on, a, on somebody over there and starting to raise kids. When I was a, when I was a, a, a young man, I was uh, in my early 20s, I figured out life just for the record, and, and I was completely selfless. You know, I was just a completely selfish human, selfless, and, and I was, you know, everything was fantastic. And then, and then I met Amber, and I was like, this is amazing. Um, we're going to get married, and, and, and like our marriage is going to be phenomenal, and I can't wait. And, and we got married, and about a month or two into it, I realized I was not as selfless as I thought. <laughs> I realized that, oh my goodness, I have selfish tendencies that tended to step on my wife, and, and, it, and it caused some friction in the marriage. It took us a little while. It took us about a year or so to try to work things out. And if, if you're newly married, it's going to take you just a little bit of time to get the friction worked out, to get the gears all to line up so you're not grinding each other's gears. You thought you were selfless, and then you get married and you realize you were more selfish than you really originally estimated. So we're married five years, six years, seven years. Life is great. We're totally selfless, by the way. I want a baby. So we had a baby. I realized how selfish I was. Things like, I don't know, six hours of sleep. <laughs> totally selfish. Raising kids is a lot of work. For anyone here who has raised kids, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of time. It takes a, a lot. It takes a lot of work to raise kids. And it's worth it. Every parent will tell you that. It's worth it. Right? It's worth the investment. Here's what happens is, as an adult. When you start to pour your time, money, resources into your kids natural, in a natural way, there's a maturity about you. The immature parent is the one who lets their kids suffer while they try to take care of themselves. The fastest way to become a mature Christian is to start to care about chair number one and start to care about other people, and start to care about those who are lost. That's the fastest way to start to reach maturity, is when you start to care about that. You know, there's a cost to following Jesus. It is. There's a cost to it. Everything that you do in life is going to cost you something. And if you stay solely focused on yourself, and, 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 you, don't, and, and you come completely selfish life, it will cost you relationships. It will, they will, you'll lose relationships. You will lose all kinds of things in life. No matter what you do, you're going to pay a price somewhere to do it. The amazing thing is that we're all slaves to something. The freedom that Christ brings is this, is that we get to now choose what we're a slave to. You're no longer a slave to sin. You don't have to be enslaved to sin the way that you've been enslaved to sin. Jesus came and brought us freedom so that we can choose where we're going to go. Who are you going to follow? What are you going to do? Are you enslaved to your own selfish desires? Or are you enslaved to following Jesus? I'm telling you, he's the bread of life. He satisfies your hunger. He satisfies your thirst. 
You know, there's a relational cost of following Jesus. Sometimes it messes up relationships. Sometimes you can get into a relationship with Jesus and you realize that maybe your relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend is, is going down a sinful route. Or maybe you've been living with somebody and, 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 uh, and, and you have some sexual sin in your life and you start to follow Jesus. Maybe God convicts you of that at some point in time in, in your relationship with Jesus. And, and you start walking and you realize what I'm doing is actually against the word of God and, and I probably need to change that. That might end your relationship with somebody. Sometimes your family can't understand why you would ever join a church or ever follow Jesus because you found something, but they don't understand it. And, and there's even situations where families will completely reject their, their children over those types of things. You could, you could lose relationships over following Jesus. You might lose a friend. You might lose something. You know, following Jesus takes time. It requires time. There's a time investment that you have to make. Because Jesus is, when you're, when you're a Christian, if you get stuck in chair two, you'll always think it's about you. But Jesus wants you to grow into being into chair three so that you understand that it's not about you. It's about investing in the next generation. It's about investing in the next generation. The shift that we're making as a church is this, is that we will be a church of all ages, but we're going to reach the next generation. That's what we're going to do. We're going to reach the next generation. Because if we don't, we die. So many of you have prayed and given and financially supported this, this church for, for so many years. And, and, and the legacy of this church needs to continue to go so that we can continue to reach more and more and more people. If we cater everything to the older generation, then we will lose the younger generation. And our legacy will die with that. And I don't care where you're at in age. We must always be pushing down and reaching into the next generation. It's called discipling. It's called reaching. It's, it's called expanding the kingdom, continuing God's kingdom everywhere that we're at. It costs you time. It could cost you money, too. The Bible talks about tithing. 10%. Dear God. I'm over here Monday through Friday, but Sunday. Jeez. 10%. God, I might even go over to this one. I mean, <laughs> it's what the Bible says. It is what the Bible says. And you're like, man, that pastor is harsh. That's what the Bible says. It talks about tithing. It talks about 10%. And for some of you, it's like, well, I don't know if I can even do 10%. Where can you start? Because it's a growth. It's a growth process. It's a growth track. If you, have a, if you say, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with this. I, have, I can't know if I can give 10%, but you know what, God? I, how about this? I will be disciplined in giving 1%. Start there and see where, where God leads you. Pretty soon you might be one and a half or two or two and a half or three. And, and as you grow in the Lord, as you grow in your faith, and as you grow in maturity, you will see that number grow until you get up to 10%. And you start to see this is where God, is, his, his standard is at, is in that, that 10% number. It's interesting. It's just what it says. If you aren't giving financially, then you aren't a mature believer. You see, mature believers do a couple of things. They share. They share their faith. They have faith conversations. They're leading people to Jesus. They're inviting people to church. If you're a mature believer, I would say, how many people have you personally led to Jesus in the last 12 months? That number would probably be an indication of how well you're doing in sharing who Jesus is with other people. There should be more than a zero there. 
Serving, giving of your time. It's gonna cost you time. How are you serving other people? How are you serving them? What are you doing to serve other people? What are you doing to serve the next generation? You know, a simple one is join our kids ministry here at the church and get involved there and start investing in kids that are, that are in preschool and elementary age kids, even, even nursery. Start, start investing in the next generation. Find a way to get connected into investing in the next generation. It's an easy way to do that. Are you giving of your time and, and are you investing in the future of the church? Are you investing in future of the church? It's funny, when, when you think about investing in the next generation, my kids don't even think about it, but they need new shoes. So we go to the store and we go buy new shoes. Well, while they're trying on shoes, my wife and I are like, holy cow, this is expensive. But they come back out, oh, those look fantastic. Those are great, you know. Holy cow, that's expensive. You know the benefit that I get out of buying new shoes? Not, not, not a lot. Just bought braces. That's fun. Yeah, that's fun. Six thousand dollars. It's like so you 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 buy braces and and, and you know and it's and, and I love to do it. My, my daughter's sitting in the front row. I just I, I I love you to death. But so but I just bought braces and and, and it's like okay, who gets the benefit from that? Because I shell out the money. I drop the dough. I pull out the card and cha-ching on that thing, right? And then, but my teeth still have a little bit of yellow spots and they're a little bit messed up. And 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 so like so who gets the benefit of that? Listen, raising kids is expensive. It's expensive. It's not no different in the, in, the, in, the, in the church. Raising kids is expensive. You know how much money we spend on curriculum for kids? You know how much money we spend on investing in our student ministry department? You know how much money we spend on, on those types of things? We spend a lot of money there because it's worth it to invest in the next generation. The tithing, the 10%, it goes right back into helping reach people for Jesus. It enables the church to be powered fully to go do the work of the kingdom. That's what the Bible says. That's what we do. That's what we need. It's how we do it. My, my, my prayer for you is this, that you would go and, and that you, would, you and your spouse, if you are married, and go and pray and say, God, what would you have us do in this area? I want you to pray about it, hear about it from God, discuss it, and then just do what he tells you to do. Just go do what he tells you to do. I don't track everybody's stuff and try to track them down and be like, hey, you missed a something. I don't know. I look at big numbers, just so you know. I see the big number come through from the week. And I go, okay, is that enough to cover the bills for the week? And God's always paid for the bills. He's always taken care of things. In fact, I want to say thank you to those who have consistently given over years and years and years and years. Because of your generosity, because of your faithfulness to God, this church has made it and grown and gotten bigger and bigger. We're reaching more people than we've ever reached before. And I'm telling you, I'm so grateful for everything that you've done, sacrificially giving in that area because it makes a difference so that we can invest in the kids that this house is bringing up. Not just our kids, but spiritually speaking too, those who are far from God. I forgot about one of the chairs though. This is my favorite. This is kind of funny. Maybe, maybe you've seen this chair. Oh, scratching thing. It's the high chair. Gotta have the high chair. All right. So you got the high chair. Man, I love babies, don't you? Babies are so much fun, and, and so you, you, get, you get the babies in here, and, and, uh, and so here's, here's what happens sometimes is, is that we, we, we end up slipping into the high chair mode. Now, I'm sure you've never done this, but maybe you've, maybe you've seen it done before, and then the high chair mode kicks in, and, and, and then the high chair attitudes start to come out, and, and, then, and then pretty soon you have somebody in there. What do babies say? 
Babies are like this. They're, they're, like, they're like, feed me. I'm hungry. I need more food. You know, take care of me. I want the worship set to be longer. I want more songs. I want less songs. The music is too loud. The music is too quiet. Feed me. And here's what happens inside of a church is, is that if you fall into the whiny mode and you start saying, me, 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 I, 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 you're certainly not in the mature chair. And you're, I don't know where you're at in the scheme of things, but this happens. It creeps into churches sometimes. And here we are. We got, we got babies crying. And, and then there's reactions that people make to the babies, right? And so here's, here's what happens in the baby situation is that what happens is pastors will do do this. And, and I've been guilty of doing this, but I, I'm trying so hard not to do this. And, and this is what happens is, is that we grab our chair and we say, okay, all right, baby, no problem. No problem. Why don't you just calm down? Please don't leave the church. You know, I, I know that you give a lot of money and, and we kind of need this. So here, well, what do you need? You need? Here, I'll feed you this. And then, and, and then and just, you know, just, just be happy. Calm down. You'll pass a fire. Okay. And the whole time I'm doing this, I'm turning my back on everybody else that's over here. When we start to get self-centered in the way that we look at church and the way we look at ministry and the way we look at God's kingdom, it turns into a high chair situation. We can't let the high chair creep in. We can't let it happen. We can't let that thing get in here because guys, we got a mission to go on. We got things that we got to take care of. We, we have people who are far from God. They're literally going to hell, literally going to hell. When we start doing this, these games, and we start playing with high chairs, we basically just say, you guys can just go to hell. I don't care because I care more about two decibels on the sound system than I do about your soul going to heaven. We got to look back people's situations and see their soul. We've got to go actively search for those who are far from God. Because guys, we need more people in our church to be in chair one so that we can move them from chair one into chair two. So that we can move from chair two and move them into chair three. It's all about growing the kingdom of God. And it's what we're going to do, and it's what we're about. Church, that is what the church is about. Amen. About growing the kingdom of God. If the band would come, I'm going to wrap up with right now. <clears throat> it's funny, you know, you, you can't reach the people that you complain about. You, you can't. You can't reach the people you complain about. You, you, you can't disciple those that you're dissing all the time. If you find yourself complaining about the next generation, you need to stop. If, if the word millennial and a negative comment comes out of your mouth, I'm telling you, you have to stop. Because if you are complaining about millennials, which this entire universe seems to be complaining about millennials right now. I'm telling you, they are the most undertapped generation that we've had in a long time because everybody's dissing on them all the time. Listen, there is so much that God wants to do in that generation. If you're a millennial in the house, I'm so glad that you are here. I love you. I love your generation. I love what you're doing. I love what you guys are about because I'm telling you, there is an awakening right now. There's a spiritual awakening that is happening across our country within the millennial generation, and we have got to capture this. We can't be somebody who is complaining about a specific group of people, a specific generation. We have to be somebody who is reaching after them, tapping them on the shoulder and saying, come on, I got, we, Jesus has something bigger for you. We've got to be a church that is reaching into the next generation, into the next generation. It's funny, I had harsher words for that. My wife was like, you probably shouldn't say it that way. You know? I was like, all right, all right. It, it was something like, 
<laughs> the millennial bashing church is somewhere over there, not here. If, if, if you're going to be bashing millennials, this, this, this isn't the place for you because this house is going to invest in the next generation and we're going to find a way to help them. They don't need to get tore down. They need to get built up. They, they need to be discipled. They need to be raised. I mean, they, they, here's the thing that I find amongst millennials that is amazing. Almost all of them say, I feel like I have potential, but I need someone to mentor me. I hear that nonstop. I wish somebody would invest in my potential. I wish somebody would, how am I going to maximize this? I feel like there's potential in me and I'm just not sure how to get there. There's, there's something inside of the young generation right now that's crying out for that. And us as the church, we are more equipped than anybody else to be able to reach that generation to help mentor them and, and disciple them and help them grow in, in their walk with the Lord. Help them discover who they are, the purpose that they have in life, and help to raise them up and set them loose on the world. I'm telling you guys, the next generation is here and they're ready. And it's time for us to start to reach. Well, I can't go talk to a millennial. I'm, I'm 55 years old. Well, Jesus probably shouldn't have talked to the woman at the well either, but he heard, jumped those cultural hurdles to get there. My encouragement to you is to jump those hurdles. On a dangerous sea coast, there was this place where ships would wreck all the time. They would occur there all the time. and So uh, they built this crude little life-saving saving station. It was just a hut. They had one boat, a couple of people trying to help. They would see the shipwreck. They'd jump in the boat. They'd run out. They'd grab the, the people, the survivors, and, and bring them back in and, and get them inside and warm them up and, and get them some food and then send them on their way. And the little hut actually grew. The little operation grew a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. People who had been rescued from the shipwreck, some of them said, I'm going to hang around and start to help with this effort because it saved my life, so I'm going to help save someone else's life. And so the hut began to grow and grow and grow. More and more people came along. People who hadn't been shipwrecked thought, this is an amazing thing. I want to be involved. They started to help out. People started giving money. So they, they started to add extra boats and they add extra crews. And, and they're able to save more and more and more people. They selflessly went out day and night looking for the lost at sea. A little life-saving station, it grew. You see, some members were unhappy with the little crude hut. So they felt more comfortable. They thought maybe we should build a nicer place. So they did. They bought, built a nicer building. And they had little cots and, and stuff. But then they, they thought we can upgrade this too. So they got nicer cots and nicer beds, nicer furniture. Pretty soon they had refrigerated air and nice heating system. And, and they had it beautifully decorated. And, and, they, and the, the thing just grew and grew and grew. And they had more and more boats. And then they found that, that some people just didn't really like the whole life-saving part of it. So they stayed in the, in the building and they hired people to go jump on the boats to be crew members to go run out and do the life-saving. So they stayed inside this new uh, beach resort club that they have now established and they have the life-saving crews running out and saving people and saving people. But one day a giant ship crashed and, and a ton of people were in the sea and, and the crews just kept bringing them in and bringing them in and bringing them in and their little place got, their, 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 their establishment got just overrun and overcrowded with these people who were cold and wet and sick and, and trying to get them in and, and save them and it was really uncomfortable and the people that were in there, they're saying, well, we should quickly, they got the building committee together and they put together a shower unit on the outside. Let's clean them up on the outside before we let them come in to the inside. Of course, this sparked this huge debate and they were doing this thing and then there was a couple people that said, listen, I, I feel like we're, we're, we're losing our focus. But the majority of them said, no, you know, I think the actual life-saving part is kind of 
hard. I don't know if I like it anymore. It's kind of messy. I mean, they still had the life-saving motif, you know, the way they dressed it up inside. When new members came along, they had a symbolic boat in the room of membership. So they would talk about the life-saving history of, of how they used to save lives. But the few people against the many, they, they had a, this disagreement. And so they said, listen, we're not going to change. But if you want to go out and save lives, you can start your own little hut down the road. And so they did. And the hut grew. And history repeated itself. Now that, that seacoast is lined with these beautiful beach resorts, all in the life-saving motif, all talking about how they founded themselves by seeking those who were lost at sea. Shipwrecks, shipwrecks are so frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown and die. Church, let us not lose the focus of who we are and what we do. There's a world around us, shipwrecked, lost, hurting, hopeless. Let us not get enamored with the things that we do and forget about the mission that we're on. I'm gonna pray a prayer over everyone here in a minute. And it's a prayer you're gonna wish I hadn't prayed. You're gonna go like, man, why did you pray that? Don't leave. We're going to pray this prayer. So will you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, God, you've set us on a mission to go reach those who are lost. God, I pray right now that for everyone in the room that you would bring divine encounters into their life every single week, all the way to the end of 2020, God. Let it be so um, un usually supernatural that people are coming into their life, that they're, that they're forced to talk about you and forced to talk about Jesus, forced to, to talk about, about church, God. God, I pray that, that people will be forced to cross cultural and, and social boundaries. God, I'm asking for divine appointments in every single person's life in this church. And we can't escape the call that you have called each and every one of us to. Help us to suppress our fear, to, to get over the, the anxiety of talking to people about you. God, help us to be able to embrace the mission that you've called us to so that we might be ones that are called, that are goers into our own backyards, into our own offices, into our own gymnasiums, everywhere that we go, God. Before we leave this morning, every head is still bowed, every eye is still closed. You might be here this morning, and when I was talking about the chairs, you might be a chair one person. You might have been hanging out around here. You might have been thinking about chair one and, and you're like, well, that's kind of probably where I am. And you've never made the switch from chair one to chair two. Or maybe something happened in your life and you, you were a chair two, maybe even a chair three person, but, but something happened in life. And along the way, you eventually just rejected God and you moved yourself all the way back over to chair one. Today, I want to give you an opportunity to make that transition from chair one back to chair two. Jesus doesn't care as much about your past as he does about your future. He died on the cross to give you a way to be reconciled with him. His mission is to be in right relationship with you. He accepts you right where you're at, loves you right where you're at, and he wants to help you get strong, maybe even strong again. If that's where you're at, nobody's looking around and you say, I'm a chair one person. If that's where you're at, we just like kind of glance at me, put your hand in the air, let me know. I want to know who I'm praying for. That's it. I just want to be able to say that. I see that hand. Anybody else? Here's what we're going to do, church, is, is everybody together, we're going to pray this prayer. And if, you, if you're making that decision, I want you to pray with us. 
But church, will you just repeat after me? Dear Jesus, I give my life to you. I surrender everything to you. I choose to follow you. Will you come and live in my heart? Lord, I choose to make you the, I choose to make you the Lord and Savior of my life. Help me follow you all your days, all my days. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, church, let's celebrate those who made a decision. I want to I connect with you. If you could just text in Decided to this number, it hits our office. We can help you follow up. We can help you make decisions on, on your walk with the Lord. But come on, church, will you stand with me? And let's sing one last song before we leave.